Welcome. My name is Nathan Illman, and this is Beneath the Armour podcast, the place where healthcare professionals talk about what it's like to be them in this challenging field, and a place where listeners can come to feel connection through shared experience. Welcome, everybody. This is episode number three of Beneath the Armour podcast with me, Nathan Illman. So, as I record this, it's the 29th of October, 2020, and there's been some great news in Melbourne. We've finally come out of our really restricted lockdown, so this is going to be the first weekend in a long time, I think four months, that I'm going to be able to go out and actually see a group of friends, which is wonderful. I hope everyone listening is doing well and managing okay in this difficult time, wherever you were based. So today's episode was recorded a couple of months ago in our winter time. And I had the pleasure of speaking to Professor Ian Hickey. Ian is an internationally renowned professor of psychiatry and he's the co-director of health and policy at the University of Sydney's Brain and Mind Centre. He's also an NHMRC senior principal research fellow. And there are a whole raft of other achievements and positions and grants and very important things that Ian has been involved in over his career, which I'm not going to read out now because it would take a while. So I'll leave you to to check that out on the show notes. You can find a link to Ian's profile on his um, university webpage. So a lot of people listening would have come across Ian, I'm sure, from some of his amazing research he's done. You may have seen him at his kind of intersection with mental health and politics, um, having interviews with different people. You may have seen him on TV. You may have read some of his articles in The Guardian. In fact, I think he released one this week, which was really great, commenting on the government's response to the COVID crisis and the, the budget and how that impacts mental health. I was really fortunate enough to have this conversation with Ian and to go beyond talking about the details of his, sort of his research projects and go a bit more into the personal side of things for Ian, as I like to do in my conversations with my guests on this podcast, I was asking Ian's kind of story about where he came from, how he got into psychiatry, what were some of the most sort of formative and important experiences for him over the course of his career, and listening to his history and and the kinds of things that have happened to him and the experiences he's had was absolutely fascinating and I'm sure other people will find this really interesting. I feel like I learned a lot personally from this conversation and some of the pearls of wisdom that Ian kind of mentioned were things that to this day actually kind of I took from that and had sort of reflected on things. Something in particular that Ian was mentioning was the concept of individual versus group-based resilience and the importance of community and family And I think this is something that's really, really important, which I'm sure a lot of people will connect to and um, find very, very useful. If you enjoy this episode of the podcast, then I just ask a small favour that you share it with one other person in your network. That's enough talking from me, though. I'll leave you to this episode of Beneath the Armour with Ian Hickey. Ian, thanks for coming on the podcast. How are you doing today? It's a pleasure. It's another fine, beautiful day in Sydney and I've been outside, so I'm feeling pretty good. Excellent, excellent. Um, so I suppose one place I'd like to start um, today is just thinking about your personal and professional journey over the years. So I suppose this kind of question comes from my own bit of self-reflection about how I've changed probably over the past 10 years, thinking about myself as a kind of young man and um, how I've developed and sort of shaped through different experiences. Um, you know, and I was looking at your your resume and all the th- amazing things that you've done, and I expect there's been... Um, a number of kind of changes for you uh, over the years. So I was just wondering if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about maybe even starting sort of quite far back when you were a young man and, and how you feel you've changed and developed o- over the years. Yes. So I've been in mental health or, or in psychiatry for 35 years, which seems an inordinate long period of time. But um, essentially having been a young doctor and I come from a medical and academic family, but more importantly, I think, I come from a large family, a large social family. Right. And I must say that in the context of that, one that's always been interested in the social context in which it lives. And I think in general terms, I've gone into medicine because of the general utility and really useful thing to do, challenging thing to do, and a strong sense of sort of public good associated with that. You know, if you're going to spend your life doing something, you may as well do something fundamentally useful. 
Yeah. I think I say to my kids still at this stage, for God's sake, get yourself a skill somewhere along the way mm -hmm. so that you might be of some use to somebody else, no matter what else you actually do. And I mean that in the sense of being engaged with society, you know, and I think so it's an ongoing basis the issue about engagement. So say one thing about my career in general, one of the great things about mental health, it's all about engagement. It's all about participation. It's all about both the context in which we live plus who we are within that context, the vulnerabilities that we all have within that context. So it's one of those areas of medicine in particular where context is everything, where context meets individual vulnerability. And so um, pretty quickly when I was in medicine, the extent to which many areas of medicine are actually quite boring. Mm -hmm. You can become technically very good at something, yeah. some sort of carpentry, some sort of plumbing, some sort of repair, and you can do a tremendous amount of good doing that. I'm very grateful to friends of mine that are interventional cardiologists and orthopedic surgeons. Others, I rely on them constantly mm -hmm. to assist me. But um, at another level, uh, I've always found that a bit boring, you know, <laughs> and I'm not really a technician. There are people who are great technicians. I'm not necessarily a person who takes great pride in technical things of that nature. I prefer more the intellectual, the conceptual, the cognitive challenge. Mm -hmm. Great thing about mental health, though, it's not just a cognitive challenge. It's not mathematics. It's not economics. It's not abstract. It's actually quite emotional. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, in the background, if I reflect about this, um, and having recently, I mean, a few years ago, taken my own children to Ireland, I think I come from basically Irish emotional stock, where the <laughs> emotional valency of something is as important as the cognitive valency of something. And, of course, mental health is both of those things. It's cognitive and emotional resources. So... At the time that I went into psychiatry in the, in the mid-1980s, early 1980s, there was also tremendous enthusiasm for two things. The social movement of the 70s, actually, a freer, more liberal, more open society and a willingness to engage in these kind of issues. Hard to believe now because into sometimes our society at certain levels seems to have gone backwards since then. Mm -hmm. But there was a willingness to get out of old ways of thinking into new liberal and opening up kind of ways, and that was tremendously important for mental health at the time and also a real explosion in science at the time that we might actually come to start to explore how brains actually worked how our cognitive and emotional resources are actually put together and be able to reconcile the apparently irreconcilable which still goes on between the those who argue it's all about context and those who argue it's all about individual vulnerability mm -hmm. you know so one is fundamentally social the other is sort of more fundamentally biological and still sadly in my area 35 years later, still people often have those kind of arguments, nature versus nurture, society versus individual vulnerability, completely mm -hmm. unhelpful. But, you know, we've had trouble moving beyond it, in part because the science behind it, it remains quite complex. As uh, President Obama remarked, uh, you know, the journey into outer space has been much more successful than the journey inside our own heads. Mm. And we've travelled much further <laughs> in yeah. outer space than inside our own heads. So, you know... There's quite another American, Donald Rumsfeld. We still don't even know what we don't know about how it is yeah. that that piece of tissue sitting inside your head, which sits inside your body and relates to everybody else, gives rise to consciousness, to emotion, to feelings, to the very complex beings that we actually are, the very complex social beings that we are, mm -hmm. in fact, in that particular way. And so uh, although in the 1980s and then in the 1990s, it might be a huge explosions, particularly in brain imaging. So you can see the brain in life, in human genetics and in other areas, people were incredibly optimistic. Oh, I might say new treatments too, new medicines and new treatments in that area and an awareness of how common mental health problems were in the wider society. And that's not just a few small number of people with severe illnesses living on the street, you know, homeless, but actually a much broader sense of the impact of mental health more broadly in all of our lives. You know, so you had these things going on in imaging, genetics and therapeutics in the 1990s, which are all with great enthusiasm. And I'd say as a young doctor at the time, I agree with that with great enthusiasm. So the chance myself to be involved with things like immunology in the brain, brain imaging in the brain, as well as being part of movements towards a more progressive society. So the combination, which has been so thrilling in my life, I've never been bored I've never been like many of my doctors, friends of my age, they're bored in their 40s and 50s. They're technically competent, but they're mm -hmm. bored doing the same thing over and over. And they've gone off, you know, they've gone sailing or they've gone to become farmers or they've taken up a musical instrument or they've done something else. Yeah. I remain actively and challenged every day of my life with the, what we don't know, what we haven't achieved, 
but also the tremendous challenge that still lies ahead. And I think uh, my own career reflects chasing various of those opportunities, whether they've been on the social, political front, on the international collaboration and cooperation front, in partnership with other areas of medicines, or trying to use new areas of technology or therapeutics to improve the lives of people whose lives are still severely impacted by the nature of their mental illness. Right. When you look back in it, you know, all of the work you've done, have there been specific, um, specific points or specific events that, that you really feel kind of um, were transformative for you or really changed the way you thought about something, the way maybe it was the way you thought about the, the work you were doing, the research or the clinical work, or even just thought about life in general, or that it just really shifted things for you? Yes, I think um, I've been lucky to have had a lot of opportunities and taking those opportunities, being somewhat novelty seeking, taking those opportunities has proved to be very productive. So when I was a medical student to actually live in the southern Philippines back in the Marcos period, where you see the impact of political structures on people's real lives, but also I think, and very importantly for young Australian doctors, I think, to live outside of the Australian healthcare system and outside of Australian society and other parts of the world that do not enjoy the advantages that we enjoy, mm. either politically or resource-wise, and see people who really are really tremendously important people, and I think medical leadership in that area, very struck by people, doctors and others, who took strong medical and political leadership roles. No point just running a clinic and ignoring the politics sitting around the clinic. So I was there, there were doctors in the Philippines who went to jail, who got arrested. You know, oh. were leading social movements. Not that they, were, they weren't leading political movements. They were leading social movements to improve the welfare of the communities in which they worked. They had a responsibility to be engaged because of the impacts on people's health and well-being. And I think importantly for Australians, for young Australian doctors and people in many areas, I think, you know, we are so blessed in Australia in resources and the country we live in that in any of these areas, I think, you know, it's hard to understand at times uh, the assets that we have and the opportunity that we have. And I would say the responsibility to act on that opportunity. So I think spending time in a developing country in other areas, but seeing how other people respond to those particular areas. And I think in terms of medical leadership, but also the challenges that others face elsewhere in the world. And in a sense, many of the responsibilities are global, not just local. Um, I'd say another aspect of that is uh, when I was on a thing called a Harkness Fellowship of the Commonwealth Fund of New York, and I went to... Duke University in North Carolina in the 1990s with my very young family, mm. which is a fascinating thing to go to a country that has a completely different approach to health, education, and social welfare, but also to work outside of health and to see how people addressed issues in prisons, in education, in, in other areas, in architecture, to learn from other disciplines, issues that may be relevant to your own. So one of the problems for medical specialists is to become incredibly specialised in the smallest possible thing. <laughs> Yeah. Know, and failure to see the possibility of other areas. I come back to this because I think in the 21st century, this is around technology, are good examples of this, but in the 1990s to work in other areas of social policy. Again, this was in the Clinton era and a lot of doctors and people I was associated with in public health were also part of movements to try and change the American healthcare system. Back when Hillary Clinton was the wife of the president, the first attempt to bring around really substantial healthcare insurance reform in the United States failed during the Clinton era. But as a social movement, the role of public health officials, doctors, medical leadership, both for and against, you know, a chance to see that and to have an international kind of perspective. Again, very important kind of idea. Get outside of your own just narrow career development mm. to see and hear other perspectives from other disciplines. And really important people in those particular areas and really a guy called Dan Blazer, Professor of Medical Education at Duke University, uh, works in old age psychiatry, um, a man of um, very Christian values. And I mean this in the very broad, not, not narrow fundamentalist Christian, but broad Christian sense mm -hmm. of uh, importance in the world of acting with a certain set of values into a wider world and the application of that in medical education and in medical leadership and kind of training. And the Commonwealth Fund of New York itself, you know, in encouraging the movement between countries of perspectives and the sharing of expertise, and they're not, you know, it's rare that you're, you're all right and everybody else is all wrong. You know, it's more likely 
all of our systems are imperfect and they're yeah. different. And they're also historic and cultural. I mean, you know, it's hard to know at times the extent to which we're just playing out our own history and culture. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. I think one has to be in other kind of areas. I think uh, after that particular thing, returning to uh, Australia and then pursuing in partnership with some very uh, important people, and one, one is now sadly no longer with us, Margaret Tobin, a psychiatrist and a ministry of psychiatry, so not an academic or research psychiatrist, a ministry of psychiatry at St George Hospital in southern Sydney, trying to set up new services, trying to behave differently, trying to see service development, not just academic research, but, but how things get implemented in the real world mm-hmm. in better ways. In, in actually taking the situation forward. And then uh, really jumping from that in the early 2000s to become the CEO of Beyond Blue. So really jumping out of my, if you like, my specialist world and my mm-hmm. academic world, all very important, I might say, but into something like being a CEO of a brand new NGO organisation. You know, several of my academic colleagues at the time said, you've got to be joking. <laughs> like, you know, what's a serious person like you <laughs> doing, doing a job like that? And, you know, I said, well, you know, if you're ever going to do something, you know, you may as well do it when the opportunity is there instead of complaining about the fact that it's badly done by somebody else. You know, prepared to take the opportunity, although quite personally disruptive and difficult in a number of particular ways, taking that job in Melbourne for the period that I was there was fabulous because really there was a national opportunity. And I think there's another issue, you know, the tendency in our world to complain about what people do all the time, but not mm. actually take the opportunity to present. I must say the great credit of the Howard government at the time in a deal with Jeff Kennett and others and, and negotiated by previous health minister, Michael Woolridge and others. The fact that Victoria actually, in association with the Commonwealth, went and actually did something progressive and, and really take on the issues of mental health awareness in Australia, et cetera. And, you know, it's an interesting kind of discussion at the time. Did they really want an academic person like me or did they want something, you know, more professional, managerial, et cetera? And a lot of discussion about really you need a combination of things. I mean, so the skill and depth and understanding of the area needs to be combined with other managerial and media and other, and you're right, need, need groups of people to actually do that. So many of the people in the world I'm in thought that was a very weird thing to do. <laughs> On the other hand, I thought, well, you know, if you want to change the systems you're in. Now, a very famous psychiatrist, a guy called Norman Sartorius, previous head of the World Psychiatric Association and, and um, leader of psychiatry in the World Health Organization, he has a great kind of thing that, you know, most clinicians probably should take, you know, about 10% of their time out of their clinical practices out of it, to try and change the system mm. instead of just bitching about the system they're in. Yeah. And at the you know, they have strong leadership roles, not just in their profession, but in the societies in which they live. And really, on behalf of many people who cannot speak for themselves, hopefully with people, those people with lived experience and those families who are affected, but, you know, the role of medical leadership in many areas. And Australia has a strong tradition of this, I must say, in HIV AIDS and in drug and alcohol policy and other areas, that if the medical leadership works strongly with the communities most affected, we've tended to end up with pragmatic and sensible solutions mm-hmm. that have been difficult. So I'm quite enthusiastic about the fact that that's entirely possible in Australia. So taking that particular job at that particular time um, and saying, well, don't know, don't know, this could last 10 minutes, <laughs> it could last a while. Yeah. And then uh, I guess the... Last bit of that is to say, actually moving back to Sydney to establish what was the Brain and Mind Research Institute at the University of Sydney and now it's the Brain and Mind Centre, that one of our universities, one of our big universities, would make a fundamental shift in its long-term infrastructure, its long-term systems to invest in research and others. I must say to the great credit of Max Bennett, who was the Professor of Neurosciences at the time, he wanted buildings and structures where everybody came through the same front door people who had the experience of illness, doctors who were trying to treat it, other health professionals and researchers. So they all stayed focused on the one thing and they didn't all disappear. And that kind of larger collaborative kind of framework and then the long-term sustainability of that, I think is really important. So I think there's another kind of issue. You know, we're all only at these things for a certain period of time. Mm. I think in a general sense, I say this is a general family sense as well, I'm part of a very large family, a very large family myself, is you're just one bit of it. You know, in fact, uh, when I subsequently had a conversation with Norman Sartorius some years later, 
He's saying, you know, Ian, what's the real story behind that Beyond Blue thing? Because really, internationally, it's quite a success, you know, and obviously awareness in Australia. I used to say awareness in Australia is a decade ahead of any other country. I now have to include New Zealand because they're pretty good at it too recently. <laughs> but, you know, we are still in Australia and New Zealand, you know, yeah. a decade ahead of the rest of the world. He said, you know, you've got to tell the story. And I said, look, Norman, you know, it's much more complicated than that. Many people played many different roles and also something about the history and culture of Australia that also made it possible. And Norman said, oh, forget that, Ian. People don't want to hear that. They want to hear you did this and then that happened. That's how it happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, you know, and I think in a kind of, at times, hero-like ways, we like that. You know, we sort of have that about Nobel Prize winners and we can have it about other awards that we have around individuals. I say to one of my younger sons all the time when he sees me swearing at a computer, he goes, what are you doing, Dad? You're yelling at the computer again. I said, I'm having to write one of those stupid things I have to write all the time about how good I am and what I've done. You know, <laughs> as if all of this has been done by me. You know, like, actually, that's not, that's not true. And it's never been true. Yeah. I'm part of particular other groups of people who have done things at certain times. And sometimes I think in our society the success of the individual, you know, and particularly in medical research and medical science and many of these things, which are very competitive internally, you know, sort of have that language. Whereas actually in healthcare and systems and the wider politics of mental health, the collective is far more important mm. than an individual. And I think, you know, in my life and my career, I've been extremely fortunate to work with collectives of people uh, in Australia and also internationally, some of my international colleagues in the United States, uh, person of Catholic Mary Kangas, National Institutes of Health, Jan Scott, the United Kingdom, a variety of other people, people in Canada, Peter Zatmari, you know, a whole bunch of people who are really seriously trying to change the overarching framework. And they're not people who are kind of waving their hands, look at me, look at me, look at yeah. what I've discovered, look at what I've done in a particular kind of way. Um, so, and I think, you know, mental health in some ways uh, is really good like that. It actually, it is a collective thing, you know. <laughs> it's very hard for anyone. We've got some examples of some pretty famous things that have happened, you know, where one individual has led to a particular discovery or something. But mostly the great advances have been collective and they're societal. And it's advanced in mental health awareness in Australia. There are many, many things that have contributed including the history and culture of Australia. In other parts of the world, there are many, many things that still mitigate against actually advances in those areas. And, and then collective effort and international cooperation become more central. So I think, yeah, there have been it's critical opportunities in my life. I should say in, uh, in recent years, I'm, I'll do that, working particularly with Professor Pat McGorry, Australian of the Year, you know, over the last 15, almost 20 years at this point, in collective issues around youth mental health and establishment of headspace and other sets of things as collective things. And although Pat has received entirely appropriate international and national recognition for his own role in that, I think from his similar Irish family background, he'd be the first one to say also there's a collective effort involved in that. There's been a whole series of people yeah. who have contributed to those efforts. And I think that's one of the things that I really like about mental health in the areas that I'm in. Um, it's one of the great frustrations you have to get a whole lot of people to move. Mm, yeah. <laughs> on the other hand, on the other hand, it's very social. It's very collective. And mm. um, uh, that aspect of it, it's deep engagement with people mm -hmm. and with people's vulnerabilities. You know, so I think, you know, uh, we, uh, if there's a lesson out of that in my whole time in the thing, we are all vulnerable. You know, and the moment Absolutely. you run into someone who thinks they're not vulnerable... I always think I'll see you a year or two down the track and just see how that went. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I think there's times where I've, I've convinced myself that I'm not vulnerable because things are tracking quite well. And I've been looking after my mental health and, you know, there haven't been any kind of adverse life events going on for a while, but then, you know, life kind of just things turn a corner and there's always going to be something, isn't there? It's part of, part of the there's a marvelous cartoon. I saw when I was younger, it says life is stressful and then you die. <laughs> 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 The idea that, you know, life is not going to present you with a range of difficulties or our society face the COVID-19 situation. Who predicted last year that we'd be in this situation this year? Nobody. Yeah. You know, the degree of disruption we now face or who knows what the situation will be next year? Don't know. You know, so at the individual level and at the social level, you know, I think the one thing we can say is that there will be a lot of challenges. Yeah. And, then, and the challenges are different, of course. 
and, and why certain things in certain people's lives. And I think this is at the individual level. People assume, I mean, when things are going well, people, people do assume, oh, I'm very resilient. I'm very resilient. Yeah. You know, and, and nothing, okay, you know, that, that, that might have, you know, that job loss, that marital breakdown, that whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, she fell apart of it, but I wouldn't, you know. Yeah. And then something happens in their own life, often something they would not have predicted, you know, a search of circumstances, you know, really takes them by surprise. Definitely. <laughs> you know? And whatever that is, because humans have this great idea that they're in control of what's happening to them. Which, yeah. you know, we like to be also, Yes. I think the other thing, I, my whole life in, in mental health, humans who like to believe that they're rational and that people do things for rational reasons, that the, I find my interaction with lawyers and courts and whatever often hilarious. What is the reason he did it? You know, yeah. the rational cognitive motivation. Like it wasn't rational. It wasn't cognitive. You know, people often act and then make up the reason afterwards for why yeah. they acted. Mm-hmm. And so retrospective, self-fulfilling often, explanations are not really why we do the things we are. We are much more emotional, irrational animals with a capacity to reflect on what we've done, hopefully to learn about what we do. But, you know, it does cause me to sort of smile quite a lot when I hear people talking about themselves in this rational, cognitive kind of way. Yeah, quite detached, quite detached from the fundamental emotionality, and also I might say the fundamental group aspects of humans. What we do as social groups, we are not individuals who act in simple isolation from those we're attached to. No, no. Um, Ian, something I'd like to touch on is is mental health. Obviously, you know, it's it's the field which you've devoted your life to. Um, and I suppose I'd just like to ask you a little bit about yeah, your personal experience of mental health. Obviously, we all have mental health, but I guess um, perhaps experiences of, of mental ill health that have kind of been around you in um, your own life or friends and family that, that have um, yeah, kind of been experiences that have, have shaped your um, opinions, thoughts, behaviours around um, your work. So I think there are two aspects. One, one's a kind of personal and then one's probably familial, which is kind of easier kind of thing. Mm. I think the thing is, I think the issue, and I think an understanding of this uh, across the course of my own life is kind of important. And I think often, like many young people who are capable when they're young, you tend to see yourself as not very vulnerable. I wouldn't have ever said I wasn't ever emotional. I'd say I've always been very emotional. <laughs> I put that down to the Irishness I've inherited in various ways. So I think I've always been very emotional, but I wouldn't have said that I was necessarily very vulnerable. But I think over the course of life, and I think you've only, uh, there are key sort of transitions here, having one's own children, having one's own relationships over the course of life, as things happen around you in your own personal life, the sense that you're vulnerable, right? And the extent to which that vulnerability is mitigated or protected against by the relationships that you have in your life or also complex. In fact, my original doctoral thesis is about the impact of interpersonal relationships, intimate relationships on the course of depression. So the best antidepressant in the world is a great intimate partner. The biggest threat to your mental health is to be in conflict with your intimate partner. <laughs> yeah. but, you know, most of us play out that key emotionality in our own homes and bedrooms and lives. And then when one has children, it's transgenerational and there are other people you're closely attached to those kind of sets of issues. So I think in that sense, over the course of my own life, in terms of the ups and downs in my own mental health, if you like, that, that issue that the centrality of relationships and the complexity of relationships mm-hmm. is central. So I think like many people, um, or I've, as I've got older, the illusion of being involved, not being vulnerable, to be replaced by the reality of being very vulnerable but the main mitigating factor is to be smart about what really helps isn't just myself i really don't like the idea of individual resilience in fact be fair to say i detest it you know the idea you can make yourself bulletproof and insensitive to the world which to me is like insensitive to the world yeah and we've had various people who promote this is promoting a lot of individual sort of psychological well-being make yourself resilient which is like make yourself bulletproof you know kind of interesting in the world at the moment would you say that Donald Trump is resilient? Like he doesn't seem to be affected by what anyone ever says about him. You know, he doesn't even have to be distressed about it. I wonder what goes through his mind. You know? yeah. 
So in a lot of people's definition, he'd be highly resilient. I'd say, well, that's highly undesirable for the rest of us. Yeah. And a lot of other people who are very sensitive in the world I'm in are very sensitive would be said to lack resilience. I said, well, actually, they're the people we need, you know. And I would say in politics and in leadership, et cetera, we need more sensitive people, not more bulletproof people. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Whereas resilience I think, is better conceptualized as a group characteristic, as something of groups. Even though we all have our ups and downs, that the groups that we're in actually are able to carry those who are not doing so well at the moment with them, the group survives and until the individuals. And I'd say in the course of my own life, that's the kind of view that I have. I'm very fortunate to have in my life family, partnerships, relationships, not just with family, but extended others, other key other people who are not DNA relatives, but they're very close parts of my life and have a wider kind of extended family of people who I live my life with. That's what creates resilience, being mm. firmly embedded and firmly it's, it's in one sense, an indigenous sense, it's a sense of place, like who you transact with and in particular, but it's also a sense of the people in that place, the relationships that you locate in that place over time, a strong sense of being, you know, of having a foundation that's not easily destabilised, even though the world around you can be very destabilised, or even though in times internally, you can be really struggling with really difficult things in your own life. So that's kind of, you know, um, uh, one aspect. In the other way, in my life for mental health matters, I do have a large family and people I'm very close to and mental health and mental ill health and serious mental ill health is very common. So having to deal directly within my own family, my own extended family, people who've had major mental illness, people who've been highly suicidal, people who've been dealing with drug and alcohol problems, etc., and being with them not as a professional, not as their doctor. Yeah. But as someone trying to actually deal with those issues with them when it's some pretty dark times, and also, very frustratingly, trying to transact the healthcare system to get them help, yeah. even though I'm an insider in the system, yep. and the system not really helping, you know, has always been a continuing and very distressing experience. So one of the greatest frustrations I still have every day of the week is trying to help my own friends, relative family, people in my own social world transact the system that I'm supposed to understand and be an expert in to yeah. get high quality care. Not, not just to get any care, but to get quality care. And it's extremely difficult. So just imagine if that's really difficult for me, yeah. living in Central City, being highly connected, and you know, and the people I'm associated with where other issues like money or geography or, or understanding aren't problems, and we still can't get decent care quality care, ongoing care, care that I know makes a tremendous difference if you get it, you know. Yep. So really, really formative thing I've got to say when I was a young doctor is the difference between seeing people who had a broken mind, like a broken leg, you know, who would be terribly incapacitated at one point in time and then actually seeing them a few months later fabulously well or back to work or back to life, you know, you know really successful treatment exists in mental illness and mental ill health, but you've got to get it. And you've got to get quality treatment. And that remains for many, many people, even in Australia, let alone worldwide, incredibly difficult. I should say, um, just not to um, um, be too miserable about that, the other big development in my own world in the last five to 10 years has been the arrival of digital technologies. And my frustration with the health system as we know it, or the sort of hybrid thing that we have here, partly NHS UK-like, partly US privatised-like, funny thing that it is, it, like everything else, is likely to be revolutionised in the digital revolution. And in mental health, that's a really good thing because an empowerment and access to care, knowing what things will happen. So the digital revolution, which I've been very much, and, I, and I'm a person who doesn't know what's under the bonnet of a car, right? I don't know how <laughs> technology actually works, but yeah. I understand cars are really important for getting around, right? Yeah. So I know nothing about how digital technology actually works, but I do see every day of the week the potential for it to revolutionise access to care for people with very significant mental health problems worldwide. So at the moment, I'm tied up with an initiative with the World Economic Forum about how do you get to 8 billion minds, right? 8 billion, that's, that's, and the answer is going to be digitally. It yeah. isn't going to be by just doing what the West has done for the last 200 years in trying to slowly move forward in the management of mental health. It's going to be transformed, thankfully, by digital health and greater personalization. Now, now there are whole there are many, many challenges with that, but 
funny stage after only being at this for 35 years, I'm quite enthusiastic that things will change, yeah. not by doing the same thing over and over and over again, which has been very slow and very difficult, but because as in many other areas of our lives, digital technologies will create really new opportunities to transform the way we currently do things and actually reach, reach much of the world, which is still strongly affected by mental ill health, but has never had the opportunity to have access to the sort of things that we might, if you're fortunate enough to be in a country like Australia. Yeah, I, I agree. That really is the, the way forward, isn't it, for the future? Um, in something I, I'd just like to kind of circle back to is you, you're talking about when you're with your family, that um, the, the difficulty with transitioning between your professional role and being, you know, a, a, you know, I'm a family member, I'm trying to support you through this difficulty. And I think that's something as a psychologist, you know, I, I have that experience you know, I've, I've, I've had it a fair bit with friends or family members going through something and, you know, you've got your, your professional hat and then you, you know, you're a brother or son or whatever it is. Um, could you just talk a little bit more about the, um, yeah, I suppose the, the challenge of that and yeah, whether you've, um, whether you've found a, a way, you know, a system in yourself for, for being able to manage that um, without getting too involved with, um, you know, your friends and family's um, problems. I think it remains, Nathan, really challenging because I don't, I wouldn't pretend that I was simply a family member because clearly family come along and say, hang on, you know much more. You must have a much better idea about whether this is any good or not, yeah. you know. Absolutely. You must be able to comment about whether I'm getting the right thing or not. In fact, um, recently I was looking at a brain scan and a, and a colleague of mine who I've known for about 25 years, he goes, what are you doing looking at a brain scan? I said, well, I'm just He goes, you really are a doctor. I've never really kind of gotten onto that. You know, and yeah, yeah, I do that. You know? He said, oh, I thought you were just a nice person in a kind of psychological sense. I thought you actually had other skills. You know? Yeah. And he sort of said, if I'd known that, I would have asked you a whole lot of other questions. You know, sort of, um, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting thing because I think there's the advantage of having knowledge and being able to therefore assist in a, in a general sense, I'd say in, more, in a more general medical assistance, because people need to know what is poor quality care. Okay, people, you know, if someone's not actually receiving something that's okay, one needs to be able to say this. I would say, whenever I say to my relatives all the time, never go into any healthcare on your own. Take mm -hmm. someone with you. Because mm -hmm. the moment you're the patient or you're the person, you're in a very dependent and very vulnerable situation. And she's the person sitting next to you that needs to go, hang on a second, to the doctor or the hospital. Or that's not good enough. Surely you can do better than that. Or you're not listening. Or you're not taking account of something. Because when you're sick and when you're vulnerable from anything else, you just tend to be grateful <laughs> that anyone does anything to relieve the distress. And it doesn't necessarily translate into getting the best possible care or challenging the systems that we're in. Um, so there is in undoubtedly with my family members and people I'm close to a degree of advocacy, yeah. a degree of traveling with them, not, but traveling with them, not in a passive way, traveling with them in an informed way. And I must say, uh, my advice to everyone else in healthcare is never go alone. And in the mental health system, never go alone. Go with someone else who is informed, who will advocate on your behalf and ask the question, is that good enough? Is that enough? Can you yeah. do better? Is there more? I mean, you know, unfortunately, our systems need to be pushed to do a better job. In an, in, I don't mean in an unpleasant way, in an irritating way, but on the basis of knowledge. Because actually, that drives systems to be better. I have a, in health systems, I mean, I always encourage the patients and people who are using those systems to write letters of complaint. Like, yeah. oh, it's a great service. I go, could you write a letter of complaint, please? And I go, look, I'm sure this bit's helpful and we've all tried, but, you know, the system isn't doing as well as it could. And it actually helped if you wrote in and said, look, I love, you know, those people Professor Hickey works with. I don't really like him, but I love those people he works with and they all tried very hard, but here's all the things that went wrong, you know, or could it have done better? Because actually the continuous feedback from users of systems makes those systems better and empowers people to get better care, better personalisation. The danger in the whole of medicine is people see you as an average. You are one of 20 people sitting in the outdoor clinic with there and a tendency to detach from what is really happening to each of those 20 people and maximising the outcome for all 20 individually, not maximising the average. 
No one's individual experience is average. It's entirely personal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the goal should be to get the best care that that person should get, not that they all get the average. Yeah. Yeah. You don't just walk out and go, they've all got fever, give them all an aspirin. Yeah. And the fever on average will go down. Yes, three died, two recovered spontaneously. But there's a danger and a danger in something that came, and, and, and often in our healthcare systems derived from the British, I blame for this, this, it's called fair, it's called equitable. It, well, in my area, it can be equal rubbish to everybody. Okay, yeah. It actually wasn't actually fair. It might have been equitable, might have been equal. We got the same thing, but it wasn't fair. People didn't get what they actually needed in particular things. And of course, this is, and it's very difficult, you know, like, um, but, but you've got to see, I think, these things as more partnerships in care and they require an active voice. So in my own role, going back to your central question, my own role is to often accompany and be an active voice, hopefully not just be a pain in the neck, but an active voice out of what I know to assist people and encourage them to be active, despite the fact that they are also very vulnerable in those situations and those around them to be active. Because, you know, in the particular things, it's very difficult to be a family member, a carer, or somebody with a significant mental illness and other areas, you know, and then there's a lot of kind of issues tied up in that. Um, so I don't, I don't go with the very strict kind of boundary ideas that if you are a professional, you suddenly you're a family member, you're suddenly not a professional anymore. You're sort of, sort of as ignorant as the rest of them type idea. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, you know, in terms of active treatment decisions or providing active treatments, I would see myself often accompanying, advocating for trying to make sure that, the health system or health clinic or whatever it is the person's involved in is doing the best that they could do. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. And if not, find another one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, feel it's, free to find one that works. You know, it's, it's so important, you know, isn't it? The active consumer of care gets you better care. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I've, I've got experience of that with, um, I think that's one of the, the pieces of advice that I try to give friends and family as well as, and this, you know, same same with um, doctors and you know your medical care as well. As if you're not happy with something, is to you know second opinion or choose. Yeah, a different. good example would be people say to me all the time. I saw a doctor who doesn't see families, and they say, "What should I do?" I said, "Get another doctor." Yeah. <laughs> if some doctor says you don't see families, forget it. Get another doctor. I mean, yeah. it's just you know sometimes and people go, "Really?" <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're allowed to do that. And it's entirely unhelpful. I mean. I have a certain thing with young people I see and often if a whole family turns up and, you know, whatever else, they're all expecting me to say, oh, I'm going to take this 16-year-old in a room on my own. I go, forget it. Or, in fact, they have quite a large office at times. All in. Let's get everybody in. You've all bothered to come. So, like, you know, nice. whatever. And the person exists. The 16-year-old does not exist on his or her own. They're, you know, they, pay, they come as part of a group. And I think one of the things learning from Indigenous groups and other groups and other cultures, this preoccupation with the individual, which is a very Western psychological idea and, post 20th century idea is not historically culturally evolutionary where we actually come from so you know i think in regards to family members we should see ourselves as active parts of those groups and if we are more informed and more knowledgeable we have legitimate roles in those groups it's tough though and it's very frustrating when you know that better care could be provided and you're struggling yeah so i find it very distressing when yeah. i can't um engage uh with people i'm very close to uh or feel that they're not mm -hmm. receiving the best possible care and you mentioned about the importance of feedback and complaints and that sort of thing and that's something i was quite curious about Ian. was um I, I expect over the course of your your career you have received feedback and um you know constructive and positive in in various forms and i i sort of um you know, it's something I sort of reflect on. I as... think there is such a thing. A very famous psychiatrist, John Ellard, said, you know, this, people talk about positive criticism. He said, look, let's be clear. There's criticism. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you address it up. Else, you know, we are all sensitive to yeah. the critical things that people say, right? So yeah. I think it's a very interesting kind of thing because um, I would say that, I, I, well, I think I have something of a reputation for being critical of others right. and of other things. And I think um, 
Uh, I was remarking on the sermon, I was listening to a business thing this morning with the most flowery, beautiful tone, a man who had the more superlatives in one sentence. I think he was trying to say thank you, but it took about 35 you know, phrases and whatever. Yep. I was, and I was thinking to myself, I would have never said that. I would have said thanks. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I thought, oh, oh, perhaps I should have dressed that up a little bit more. So I think at times I have a reputation for being fairly direct. And if I'm critical of something, I'm critical. But I'm mm. not being critical, I'd hope, often not of the person, but of the system or of the clinic or of some particular thing. So I want to engage in the criticism, to be, to be open to the criticism. Now, to that, many people are critical of me. Yeah. Right? So, and I, I think I'm sensitive to that criticism. Now, hopefully in a productive kind of way. I mean, I enjoy, I do enjoy, I mean, one of the great things I must say about other people when I first went into psychiatry, and I must say to the great credit of people like Gordon Parker and Gavin Andrews at the University of New South Wales, and the reason I ran, went there in the first place, they had a very strong um, uh, legacy of empiricism, okay? Opinions in our area are everywhere. Has anyone got any data? Are there any numbers? <laughs> you know, it's kind of, you know, does anyone have any actual proof that that's any better than anything else other than a louder voice or a, or a better turn of phrase or a nicer disposition? You know, is there any evidence that it actually helps? Mm-hmm. And I think that I, I enjoy the intellectual thing. And I must say when I was younger, something I miss, there was a much more robust intellectual debate People didn't take it personally. Now I think it's not, you know, in a different kind of way, that's a little bit harder to differentiate. And a lot of the public discourse is more complicated. So, you know, um, and I think quite appropriately, one needs to be respectful of there are different sensitivities and different ways of expression and whatever, and certain kinds of debates that would have taken place in certain kinds of more homogeneous groups don't work so well, you know, in other areas. There are things that doctors make say in tea rooms when having dinner with each other that yeah. should never be said in public. You know, there are certain sort of groups, which is I think of all, of all homogeneous groups, whatever they are, can have certain kinds of discussions internally where they all understand each other much better that are not so easy in the wider kind of world. So I'd say people would say that at times I'm overly critical of others or of other systems. I hope it's of systems rather than people and as a consequence of that people are critical of me <laughs> you know yeah you shouldn't you know um you're too harsh you know you're too direct uh you're insensitive to the particular uh what well, well, the different perspectives of others i don't think i mean well it's something i have to be careful about because i think we are all differentially engaged there are things that we find it easier to engage with than others there are things which where something is more like us, it's intrinsically easier to be sensitive to that which is like us. Mm. It's much harder to be sensitive to sometimes those things which are really not like us. They're not from our experience. They're not, they don't intuitively get it yeah. in particular ways. And so I think there are people who, one of the funniest ones I think is often said to me, you know, people turn around and say, oh, you know, it's terrible. You're an academic. You're an advocate. You're just, a, you're just an advocate. Right. I always think, what a weird thing to say. I kind of think, oh, oh, I kind of take that as a you know compliment, really. <laughs> you know, but it's as if it's as if saying you're an advocate is like saying you're unintelligent or you're not considered or mm-hmm. you haven't really thought about it. You're just a sort of cheerleader for something yeah. in a particular way. You haven't really, you know, you're somehow stepping outside the the neutrality of academia, and you've got dirty in the world. Another really important uh, debate I've been part of over the course of my academic life and earlier in my life, many of the academics I was part of have said it's not our role to engage. It's only our role to produce data. It's the role of others to make use of it or not, you know. Now, I always thought that it was pretty unreasonable when I first heard it. Yeah. 35 years later, I think it's entirely unreasonable. <laughs> it's really, you know, there's a great... There's a great Goethe expression, you know, it's not enough to know, you have to actually do. And I think I'm distinctly of the, you know, just being a smart ass and knowing is not sufficient. You know, if you're not willing to engage, and the moment you engage, you're going to get some blowback. You're going to get some feedback. And and the more you engage in the socio-political, the more danger. Now, I mean, I've been engaged with a lot of governments across a lot of political persuasions, you know, 
So historically, conservative governments, Labor governments, progressive governments, whatever, in a particular way. And I've always, I always hope that my engagement with them has been technical, not political. You know, for people, you know, I'm not an elected official. I'm not a, you know, representation in a democracy and whatever else. I'm certainly, I'm an advocate for the area and I hope my advice is technical. You know, the responsibility to implement all that in the political system lies elsewhere. It's kind of an interesting, you know, thing. On the academic side, people go, oh, you've gone too far. Like going to be on blue and go to the view, you know, you should get back there in the ivory tower and stay put and be neutral. And interestingly, be non-emotional. You should be cognitive, you know, mathematical. You should have a formula and just sort of leave it on the desk and hope someone picks it up. Yeah. Another thing I think is really fascinating is social media and other things and, and now universities being judged for their impact. It's very interesting. In, the academia, in academia, that's dirty business. You know, that's, that's, that's impact stuff. That's applied. You know? yeah. <laughs> so to be called an advocate or to be called applied is an insult. <laughs> I always think it's a compliment myself, but you know, <laughs> whereas to be very thoughtful, cognitive, removed, unaffected by the, and I think one of the things about being a clinician, you know, like, you know, in the area, I mean, I don't think if you spend much time in the area, really with medical students and others, just getting them to spend some time with people. In fact, very famous book in medicine, the house of God type thing has the big thing about psychiatry is that the, the capacity to be with people. Right? not to do things with them, but to be with them in the moments of their distress. And I think this is the kind of issue, anyone who's been with people in the areas in which they lose control over their mental faculties, they suffer mental ill health, the whole world breaks down, you know, to suggest that you're unaffected by it or you should just have a completely detached yeah. you know, kind of view of the suffering of the other, you know, um, I don't think it's so. Not, so I think helpful, they're great one of the great things about mental health, because of course my life, I mentioned people like Pat McGorry, but also people involved with throughout my whole career, they have been activists of one sort or another. Mm. They've been, you know, they're people who have, because I think it's the world that they're in. I think it attracts people. So I've always loved the fact that actually, in fact, when I first went into psychiatry, people go, what do you go to that for? I said, part of the thrill of it. I said, also, you know what, as a medical student, and I include people like Gordon Parker and Gavin Andrews and others in this, Henry Bradardi. I said, you know, Oh, Neil McConaughey, now long dead, a very famous professor of psychiatry. They're really interesting people, you know. <laughs> they're people who do stuff, you know. They're intellectually really interesting, but they also do stuff. You know, they're not armchair critics, you know, in a particular way. They're deeply engaged with what it is to be human and, and in a sense, also what it is to be social, not a brain in a bottle or a brain in a box, you know, <laughs> what it is to be social in that particular world and the gap between people who are living with mental, mental ill health and the worlds that they're in, the gaps are huge in their nature. So the criticisms I've run into are, I think on that, oh, you've gone, you've strayed a long way from what proper academics should do. Another way you straight, my father was a professor of cardiology. You've strayed a long way from what proper doctors should do. <laughs> <laughs> on the other side of the fence, there's a, you hang on a second, you know, you're not really one of us. You're not really. Um, I, I mean, uh, again, my youngest son, who's one of my funniest uh, commentators and critics, he goes, oh, Dad, would you shut up one day and stop yelling at the television just going to politics? I said, absolutely not. Uh, no, I, a, no one would vote for me. That would be obvious. Right? <laughs> I'm not a popularist. I'm not somebody who is actually trying to just win a majority. Not only that, nearly everything that I'm associated with is in the minority. I do hope one day it will become the majority view, but yeah. at the moment, it is the minority view. So in the destigmatization of mental health and all many other things I'm associated with, it is the minority view at this point. Yeah. As it moves to being the majority view, I hope I've moved on to whatever the next issue is. Yeah. It isn't as is, you know, in that season. I think it's an interesting thing because I think, of course, in democracies and whatever else, the challenge for those in the pol political business and political science and people I really love, like people like Jeff Gallup, previous Premier of Western Australia, discuss this thing regularly, you know, they face and have faced what can be achieved, you know, but if you can't get a majority, you know, you can't achieve it, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, and there are real tensions between where society is at. And we've seen this, we saw this back in the HIVAs, we've seen it around gay marriage, we see it around all many, 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 many issues where the politicians are the last to arrive because it's been hard to get a majority or there's been some minority that's still against it mm -hmm. who, you know, 
delays progress. And I guess for people like myself who'd rather see progress happen a little more quickly, many of the times I'm espousing what are truly minority views or are hard views. At the moment, I'm tied up in the public discussion of suicide. I'm yeah. tied up in trying to say the health system does not address there's systematic discrimination in the health system and mental health. There are actual issues that still exist in many of our worlds. These are not necessarily popular things to say, you know, and when everyone wants to pat themselves on the back and say, Australia has, you know, the world's best health system, we go, yes, but not in mental health. You know, there are no gold medals in mental health, you know, and the gap between awareness and action and, you know, words and press releases in our area are very easy. Mm -hmm. Real systematic reform is actually really hard. It's really difficult, you know, because we've got histories and cultures and attitudes that don't shift easily. And people's understanding and, and vested interests within the health system and other systems do not shift quickly, you know. They're, they're, it's harder to change many of our existing systems to be inclusive and better in mental health than it is to start afresh. Yeah. You know, so the criticism... We'll go back to your start of your question. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's always difficult to be criticised and it is criticism. I don't think it's positive. But, you know, to reflect on it about what's it about, you know, to the extent to which it's justified, have I been insensitive about something I need to be more sensitive about, you know? Is, it, is there not a sufficient coalition of agreement about particular things? But I guess also I do have a reputation for saying things that maybe people don't really want to hear at certain points. <laughs> so it'd be not unfrequent that someone said to me, did you have to say that on the radio? <laughs> or did you have to you be so plain speaking about that? Couldn't you wrap that up in some softer tone or quieter message? Yeah. I'm going like, I don't no. know. <laughs> um, well, I couldn't have. Maybe there are others, and I think this is where the voice of others and coalition of people, um, at times, I do think at times, in that sense, uh, being part of a broader team of people works better. So people I work with who, and who have a different tone or behave differently or a better identification with other groups, sometimes the message is better expressed by them and not by me. The bit I like, the harder critical bit, the more empirical bit, you know, the seriously, is this going to make a difference bit? Mm-hmm. Sometimes that, you know, is a, is a tougher conversation and you can be wrong. I mean, <laughs> I have been wrong about a lot of things in my life. So you try and say, you know, you think it's going to be X and then, you know, yeah. it's sunny tomorrow and it rains. And you go, oh, well, that's not quite what I predicted. So learning from, learning from mistakes and being wrong. So I think at this stage I give more talks now People say, oh, what have you achieved? I go, no, no, no. Here's all the things I haven't achieved. Here's all the things that went wrong. <laughs> you know? um, let me tell you about my failures. They're yeah. so much more interesting than my successes. You know? I think that's what it's really helpful for people to know about that as well. You know, when, when you have someone like yourself who is so successful, I, I know from personal experience that when I've shared things with junior colleagues that, you know, I haven't gone so well and actually that's been a learning opportunity for yeah. me people see you as you know that's just you're human and it's really helpful well i think the thing about that is i mean in a sense i'm not in a career sense i mean i'm very stable core to my career okay in one particular thing so i've never worried about being unemployed or a future or whatever Mm. i guess i've um taken those opportunities and in fact uh, neil mcconaughey very famous professional psychiatry man i dearly miss in my life he said he said he you keep doing these things. I said, yeah, Neil, they're fabulous. The opportunities there, why wouldn't I? Because not everyone would, Ian, you know. You know, not everyone. <laughs> I don't know where you get this from. That, you know, others would think that was a risky move. You know, yeah. others would be a little more considered. Maybe, maybe others would be more considered on the impact on the people they're close to of those particular moves or whatever. But, you know, you seem to have a... <laughs> I was going, well, Neil, you know, you know I don't be, maybe I'm a little bit novelty-seeking or a bit opportunity, but, you know, really if we don't take these opportunities, but it's an interesting kind of thing. And I mean, some of those crash, they go badly, they fail, you know? Mm. Um, and I guess in that sense, I think the learning out of that is more important. So I think I would encourage many people, I try to encourage people in my own area to 
take more risks and in, in association with more other disciplines. At the moment, I'm trying to learn economics. So, you know, I'd love to be an architect, but I can't draw. You know, <laughs> well, you know, one of the other things that are out there in the world that really matter and or maybe relevant to bring to bear because either I'm intellectually engaged or they're relevant to my kind of field. So I think of the many, many things I think uh, people who are very capable, however, are also very timid and, and, and very worried about the security of a particular thing and stick within much more narrow confines. And in many careers in medicine, you can do that and be extremely successful, you mm-hmm. know, professionally and uh, career and financially and whatever, which to me is a great deal of wasted talent. <laughs> you know, <laughs> going back to where I started, I don't, I, don't know, I don't know the origins of this, but, you know, I think being useful isn't just being useful for yourself. The great pleasure is being useful to other people. You know, the great pleasure in life is actually that other people derive great pleasure. In fact, just recently, this, this week, someone turned around in the middle of something else and said, and said, I almost fell off my chair. They said, uh, it's not widely known, but you're quite compassionate. I went, what? <laughs> well, that's nice. I said, would you run out and tell someone that? Because, you know, generally speaking, I think people think I'm quite hard and direct. Right and kind of focused on, um, you know, uh, because I am impatient, that's true. I'm impatient for change. And the trouble, I mean, uh, I think one of the things I like about people getting older, the notion they get more patient, the older people I work with get more impatient, which I really like, you know, because yeah. you get to a certain age and I'm a grandfather now and I have grandchildren and I have sort of like, you kind of have a realisation at some point it ends, you know, and the closer you get to that, and you think, and I do think, um, one of my other daughters, who has a much more uh, direct tone than the son I was talking about earlier on. She goes, right, Dad, um, so mental health reform's not going badly, uh, same old story. She goes, you know, best I can remember, uh, that was the same thing you were complaining about 20 years ago. So what exactly in your 35 years at this has changed, has improved. Oh, you see, these seem to be the same stories you were yelling about, you know, when I was two, that yeah. you're yelling about now. I went, thanks, sweetheart. That's a very nice reflection from someone very close. <laughs> you know, for all the noise, for all the noise that you've created, yeah. how much genuine structural reform? Now, of course, that's just what you need is your own critic inside your ass. Yeah. But it's a, very, it's a very salient point, you know, and I think... Um, if there is an issue that I'm thing I'm accused of, if you like, um, it's of impatience, you know. Um, and I always find that kind of interesting. And I like it that the older people I work with who are also impatient, you know, they want to see things happen in their lifetime, not for their own narcissistic benefit, but because they've been at it for a long time. And I think in our area, one of the frustrations is, you know, we appear to make progress all the time. And I think in attitudes and societal approaches we have, there's been a tremendous amount of progress in Australia and worldwide. But if you go to the next level of structural reform and real improvement of the lives of people, mental health, well-being in general, and then the management of mental illness specifically, then you can be much more sceptical about how much, you know, significant improvement has really been achieved. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know... Um, for many of us who've been at this for a long time, in fact, uh, I had lunch with a colleague just this week, uh, a woman in her 60s like myself, I don't think she'd mind me saying that, but she said, you know, Ian, um, when we started, and this is true, 35 years ago, you know, actually treatment was better and it's actually now not. She didn't mean the specific treatments we deliver. Mm-hmm. She means the way that we went about it in community health and outreach and joining in community psychiatry and I was once a professor of community psychiatry, you know, and now we've retreated back to a very institutional, very restrictive, you know, thing that's under a lot of pressure. And I was saying to her, uh, yeah. Uh, and she was saying it's much harder to recruit people into it than when we were recruited, when there's great optimism for change and we're going to make a big difference. You now go, well, really? It's a harsh thing to say. I don't think it's entirely true, but it's a, it's a harsh reflection to say, well, how much have we really achieved? Mm-hmm. Have we really, really you know, shifted the foundations of what we need to do. And I think that remains the challenge. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Ian, listen, um, I've really valued your time today. It's been really fascinating hearing about your journey and your story. And 
Um, you know, I feel really honoured to have had this time talking to you. Um, I'm sure this conversation will be inspiring to a lot of people. So I just want to say thank you, and I hope to, to you know, sort of connect with you again in the future at some point. Thanks for your time and interest. Hello again, listeners. Thank you so much for getting to the end of the podcast and continuing to listen. I hope you found that conversation really interesting and inspiring. I did. I think the second time I listened back to it, I got even more out of it. So maybe it'll be the same for you. I think a really big learning and point of kind of inspiration for me from that conversation was really again around the the kind of idea of humility. So I don't know about you, but I personally found it really great to hear someone as renowned and kind of sort of objectively important in society as Ian talking about, you know, the the success is really down to a group and talking about his success. Like, of course, Ian has worked incredibly hard and continues to do so. And a lot of his achievement has been down to that huge contribution of the work he puts in. But then actually recognising the importance of the collective effort of other people. And I think this is something that's really important with leadership, something that I've definitely drawn from this year in in my own leadership when working with people is recognizing other people's strengths other people's contributions and not necessarily completely downplaying our contribution because i think it's important that we do recognize the things that we're doing well but of course making it evident that it's not just one person carrying the team forward i think one of the other things that came out of this conversation for me was as you would have been able to tell, Ian's absolute passion for working in this field of mental health. And of course, whenever you're talking to or listening to someone with such a high level of enthusiasm about something, it's infectious, isn't it? It's absolutely wonderful to see that with him. And it really just got me kind of energised and and committed and wanting to take even greater action with the work I was doing afterwards. So like I said at the beginning, it's really had a, a big impact on me, this conversation. So for anyone listening who doesn't know who I am, I'm a clinical psychologist and coach and you can check out other episodes of the podcast on my website www.nathanillman.com and you can check out other kind of features and resources and things I've got on there which are aimed directly at healthcare providers but probably useful for everyone really because you know we're all human. So I have a blog on there which is focused around personal development, leadership. I incorporate lots of aspects of acceptance and commitment therapy into the work I do. I've got some guided meditations on there. I've got some worksheets and things that I've created. A whole bunch of resources basically. If you are a Twitter user, which I expect quite a few people will if you're following Ian, I know Ian's big on Twitter, then why not tweet about the episode? So you can um, tweet me, uh, my handle is at Nathan Illman and you can use the hashtag BTA podcast if you want to leave any feedback or mention it, tell your friends about it, that would be great. Spread the word about the podcast, that would be really helpful, and I would very much appreciate it. And if you're interested in subscribing to get new episodes of the podcast, then that would also be great. I've got some really great ones lined up, so I'm going to be talking to some nurses, some doctors, some other psychologists in the coming weeks and months and having some really great vulnerable conversations about what it's like working in their roles and hearing some really open honest reflections about different professions which I think everyone will find helpful and can be quite normalizing as well. Anyway I'm going to leave things there for today. Once again thank you for listening I really hope you enjoyed this and hopefully you'll be here for the next episode. Have a great day.